Welcome back, everybody, to Restless the Podcast. We're sorry it's been so long. We've had a lot going on here at home and have been pretty preoccupied. But we're excited to get this episode out to you, or more specifically, this Rogue Wave, as it features a guest that we are very, very excited to have on. Our guest today is Greg, and he is the Director of Congregational Care and Counseling at his church. And prior to doing that, he served for 20 years at various colleges across the country as a licensed counselor, often working in student services and in business affairs. And he has a lot to say on the subject of mental health and is one of the best experts that we know. And with that, we are really excited to welcome Greg to Restless, the podcast. Greg, we're really happy you're here, man, and thank you. You're welcome. Very glad to be here. Awesome. Hey, Steve, you were uh, talking with Greg a little bit before we actually got rolling here, and I thought you had some good stuff. So let's go right back to that. Greg, again, thank you just to hear on our call to speak to a topic that that I've seen, that I think Luke has seen, and in fact, Everyone sitting around the table, and I would like to introduce them, and across from me is Hannah. Hannah's actually a recent addition to our podcast, and she brings the great resume here. She even speaks Chinese and Japanese, and that's probably the only way she can understand us most of the time, but she just really brings a great resume and a really good spirit at heart, and we're excited to have her. And if I may chime into that, Hannah brings a certain empathy and very incredible ability just to understand where others are at and display compassion to them. So who, who else really could have been much better to add to the podcast, which is about people's stories and people's hearts. Indeed. I certainly second that. And to my left, Greg is Ryan. Ryan is a former policeman. He's also been in the radio business for years, but he also is familiar with this topic in his family. And uh, I thought it'd be great to have him sit in as he's a part of a men's group that uh, we've been doing for some years. And having said that, what I've been seeing, both my wife and I do groups that are kind of a parachurch type of groups that are not a part of any one church, but just reaching out to a bunch of guys who've had a past who maybe just feel left behind in some, some cases. But what we're really seeing in the last six months to actually two years is this in in folks who are struggling with the whole issue of anxiety and depression and fear, and given the state of the world that it's in right now and the things that we've been struggling with. But I've seen it to, to levels where it's just really causing people to really almost shut down, to stop functioning in the way, in a healthy way that they used to and is really taken front and center of their lives. This is what drew me to this. We've done a few press-on series regarding anxiety as related to Philippians 4, 6, and also in Matthew 6, where Jesus says, don't worry about t- tomorrow, for it has its own wor- worries, if I may paraphrase. But Scripture seems to be clear as not to worry and have anxiety. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, well, that's not magic. You know, we just don't wave a wand over it, and it happens, but that's something that I think is really important. So from a physiological standpoint, as a psychotherapist, as a counselor, and as someone who's been in this business, and also as a guy who follows Christ, how do we look at this? How do we take this on and have a real tangible answer to folks who are struggling with this? And I guess my first question, Greg, is why are we seeing, and are you too seeing an increase in people struggling with anxiety, fear, and depression? 
Oh, most certainly. And it really started in the last couple of years, I think you're maybe even a little more than two years ever since the pandemic started. And so I don't mean that there wasn't anxiety sure. front and center before the pandemic. There was still plenty of it then. But when that came in to picture, it, what we came to see is really what scripture talks about, that it's not good to be alone. Mm. Um, we come to that and that's it's right there in Genesis, right in the very beginning, yep. reminding us. In fact, that was the one thing that he said in the garden that wasn't good. Imperfection, it's not good to be alone. And so we were wired for relationship. We were wired for connection. We were designed to be together. And, and so the pandemic just really lighted for so many of us. I mean, those of us that work in offices, we're now working at home. So all that interaction is gone. Our kids are not with their peers at school. In fact, the healthy boundaries that we have, even from our spouses, because we're used to having some distance from, from our spouses and from our kids. And that's actually a healthy thing. It was designed that way, I think. And so all of us in one place and being absent from connection, which is so life-giving. I think a friend put it to me once. It's like you're, as time went on with the pandemic and being isolated and just away from people, just, it was all, people were zoomed out. I can't remember the exact terms that were used that were floating around, but yeah, they were waking up, I think each day, rather than having that full tank to start the day, they're starting really depleted because they just have not had that life-giving needed connection of being seen, being heard, and just the integrated connection that we have with people when we're physically present. It's a huge impact. So along with that, we're starting our days more depleted, mm. but life continues to be relentless. We still have to do our jobs. The kids still have to do school. We still have to take care of the homes. And so we're operating on less energy. We don't have the bandwidth to not be depleted. By the time we're halfway through the day, we're already on edge and I think I just have seen that happen. I've not only have I had increased anxiety and depression clients in my work, but I've also had a lot of marital situations come in again, because that buffer of having some distance, it makes the heart grow fonder a little bit. It's a good, it's good for relationships to not be together every second of the day. And the other piece is that you think about all the adjustments we're going to. So we're not around people in person. We're not in our normal places in the things that we do. And so you've got just multiple adjustments that are going on and adjustment takes bandwidth. Okay. And so again, some of us are depleted before the day even starts and there hasn't been that life-giving connection and relationship. And so I think that that's in my, that's my take on what's contributed to so much of the anxiety and depression. Anxiety and depression tend to go together. That's that's another conversation. But so that's those are some of my first thoughts. Absolutely. So would you say, and as you said, Greg, it, it's been linked. Obviously, this isn't new. It's been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. But is the events of COVID, the events of a world in chaos right now, I mean, they're contributing, and also the whole thing. And I'm not trying to be political, but we're meant, we're told to wear masks for for quite some time. That we're, oh, we sure. can't we can't yeah. see each other's faces. We're told to stay apart. Yep. And even those in nursing homes that that were weren't doing well, you couldn't have physical contact with in some cases. So, are are these all contributors to 
anxiety, depression, and, and fear? Oh, certainly. Yeah. I just kind of touched on it. Yeah. COVID, I think it's kind of just validating that it, it has been over the last two years where I think it's intensified. And we, I, I was focusing primarily on connection in the home, but I mean, it's, it's everywhere. And, and actually my mom, she's 87 and she works in a retirement facility. She takes care of people that are even younger than she is. And my mom, just watching so many of the residents there have to deal with at very best talking to someone through the window, like knocking on the windows. And so no physical touch and you can, you can at least see faces, but, and, and a lot of the folks, these folks that are in retirement centers, I mean, that is what is most life-giving is to have family visits. Now they, of course they cultivate relationships there, but even, even the residents that were there had to keep a distance and they were unable to see family. And there were a tremendous amount of folks that developed illnesses and the term broken heart syndrome was actually used by doctors. We don't have a particular cause of death, and but just lack of connection and isolation and alone, just being mm. alone, those are big contributors in that environment. But yes, the political spectrum, I mean, things in Ukraine, the economy out of control, just there's a lot of things to worry about and be concerned about. And so all of that piled up on top of COVID, yes, COVID has calmed down a little bit, but you don't just, oh, COVID has calmed down and everybody else is back to normal. No, it's for two years, people have been relating and living in that COVID environment. And some of them, some people actually got used to it. And I've been amazed to just see how many people have have not necessarily come back to church. And so they're relating to a community through a computer. And God never intended corporate mm. worship to be done over Zoom, because there's something about being together in person. And because it became more convenient to text people and email and so many people working from home, in fact, companies are selling their office buildings because they just are giving employees permission to just go ahead and work from home. And I think that's going to be a real killer for the work industry because there's so much synergy and teamwork that is such a critical thing. And so anyway, those are just a few a few things, just validating what you were saying. There are a lot of ingredients to our anxiety. Going back real quick, Greg, what you said about the broken heart syndrome thing. Sure. While that is a little more vacuous medically, you of would course. say as a professional that there is something to the idea of just losing the will to live and dying. Yes. Hmm. I would agree with that. Yeah. And we just saw it this week. We've had, we've had three funerals this week in our church. One of our coworkers in the office, she lost her mom. Two days later, her dad died. Oh, dear. And, and I really think that was what you were referring to, Luke, just kind of losing the will to live, maybe even longing to be with his bride again. They'd been married 62 years and his health was declining. And so I really think that, again, there's nothing I can prove. There's no medical proof of it. You just kind of get the sense that there is a loss of will to live at times. And that would be different than being literally suicidal, but rather just right. saying for whatever reason that person has internally, they just want to transition away from this life. That's right. Could it also be testimonial too? Because I know during the pandemic, my grandmother was in a nursing home. She mm -hmm. passed away while in there during the pandemic. And we were trying to visit her as much as possible. And we were just getting all these reports from the ladies in there who were like, well, what is the point of me continuing to live if I can't see anybody? Mm. She just wanted to be out among everybody and to be shut in her room. She's like, there's no reason for me to be here anymore. Yeah. I think that's very congruent with what we're talking about. 
And I think if we go back to scripture again with that idea, we were, it's not good to be alone being set in perfection. A, a mentor of mine has described hell as being alone. Hmm. And when we talk about fear and anxiety, that also tends to be one's greatest fear is to be alone. And, and that can be, that can go a lot of directions with that. But yeah, so there's a lot of connection to that. The Great Divorce, which is a novel by C.S. Lewis, yep. kind of about heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. There, there are in his allegory, if you will, there are others in hell, like you are surrounded by others, but no one can form any meaningful connection. Everybody just starts to resent each other. Yeah. And they are in their connections and their relationships alone. Everyone just walks away. That's right. I hmm. agree with that. Yeah. I have a question. What would, what do you say is missing when you go from in-person interactions to like media interactions? Like what mm. exactly is lost in communication through those? Yeah. Well, when we think of how we were designed, we even go back to the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength. So it's the vertical and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. So in that sense, there are three relationships that are core. Okay. Relationship to yourself, relationship to others, and then relationship with the Lord. And so he has designed us to be cognitive, emotional, and physical beings. And those verses just really validate that. And so when we are not physically present with someone, we are in a sense disintegrated. Okay. Because all of us is not there. Okay. I can see you guys, but it's, I guess, would you call this one dimension? I mean, what we're looking at here. Two at best. Two at (laughs) best. Okay. So just, if you just think about it, let's say that if I were to walk into the studio there in person, okay, the dynamic of the room would change. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Okay. And there's no words being said yet. But when somebody walks into a room, especially if there's just a couple people, if there's a hundred people there, one person doesn't have that impact. So there's something about our physical presence. Okay. Another answer to that would be when we think of comfort. Okay. So when we talk about comfort, okay, so what is missing? I cannot touch you physically through the screen. Okay. So you're missing what a a God designed uh, for us when someone is in distress and you sit next to that person. And they feel you side, they, they feel your shoulder touching and you put your hand on their shoulder and God's designed our skin. There's nerve endings in our skin and it just helps us to relax mm. and we no longer feel alone. And again, no words spoken yet, potentially. And so comfort, uh, physical touch and connecting verbally, not, I don't mean like by text, but I mean seeing each other's faces and talking together are the two primary ways that God's designed us to be able to come alongside each other and provide comfort and relief when we're in distress. And you can't do any of that over Zoom. What you were saying about physical presence, I was actually having a discussion about this with Hannah the other day, just how people interrelate. I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of love languages. And that's not just necessarily like romantic love languages, but that can just apply to any relationship. Like you like spending time with your best friend. Yeah. Right. Like one of mine has always been, and this I think relates to that is just simply quality time as in, I don't care what we're doing. We can stare at the wall. Yep. Yes, indeed. This doesn't get so much to the zoom piece, but maybe just a tangential thought is that another thing that I'm seeing is that people are trying to do relationship 
through social media, through texting, through emailing, through Instagram, all of those pieces. And actually, you want to talk about stress that has generated a tremendous amount of stress, especially with our high schoolers and our teens. We have seen suicide increase in suicides over images from Instagram or not enough likes on a particular comment or people looking at pictures of everybody, of course, and people tend to to want to put their best face forward in those kinds of settings. And people look at them and like, oh, wow, I can't measure up to this or to that, or I don't have those friends like they have them. And they just start, it just, it pummels their identity and their sense of value. And when we think about communication and all of you probably had a, one of those elective communication classes where they talk about, oh, about 10, 15% of communication is in content and or words in reading and 85% or 80%. And we don't need to get meticulous about, well, is it 82 or 86? But the point being is that the vast majority of it is nonverbal. Okay. And yet people are trying to have intimate discussions and connecting and they're really setting themselves up. It's a one in 10 chance that they're actually going to connect and actually hear each other well and understand. And I actually have had clients that have come in and have had conflict and arguments based on a text exchange that people had and, you know, coming in and and that blows them away to think, oh, wow, holy mackerel, you know, and what they're actually doing is they're reading, oh, can you you look at this text? They're obviously angry. They're, oh, they're obviously really unhappy with me right now. Can't you tell? And I'm like, "Uh, no, I don't, you know, but, but what you're doing. And so, you know, so you're drawing all sorts of conclusions and making assumptions based on about 10, 15% of information. But then what you're doing is you're projecting mm. the other 80, 85%. Oh, this is what they're thinking. This is what they're feeling. And this was their motive. This is their intention. And now what we're doing is we're actually depersonalizing people. We're not even allowing people to think for themselves and to have feelings and to have thoughts. We've already decided for them what they're thinking and feeling. And that happens, I see that so often just with the uh, the connecting in that way. And then, of course, the pandemic has really contributed to an increase in that because this is our best option video right here. At least I can see your face a little bit. And that helps a lot. I could just ask. In fact, I've seen that in some of the guys in the group, particularly if, if your mind isn't healthy, what you text them, what they actually hear or read is different. Mm-hmm. And I saw, I've seen some examples of that, of like trying to encourage someone by saying, you got this. Yeah. But they saw it as an example of you missed this or what's wrong with you? You didn't hear what I was saying. Right. And But obviously it's, it's a phrase to say, hey, I got confidence in you. So I've seen a pattern of this among some folks who are struggling with this is exactly what you just said. And then they tend to isolate. And as they do that, everyone else actually becomes the problem. And Mm -hmm. so that list grows. But the reality is that their mind has gone from a healthy state to an unhealthy state. It's just my thoughts. Oh, no, that's right on, Steve, I think. And again, to add to that would just be that because they're only connecting and actually connecting on about 10, 15 percent mm-hmm. or whatever, that reinforces the fact that they're actually not connecting. There's actually more misunderstanding, which actually fits one in 10. You're not going to you're not going to hit those odds pretty often at one in 10. And then that generates disappointment. And that actually pulls people even further apart. And then the very thing that they need that's life-giving connection, what we've designed for, has now been sabotaged. And then people just avoid and isolate even more. Mm. And then anxiety increases because we weren't designed to be alone. 
Exactly. You nailed that, right? You threw the ball right down the middle on that one because that's what we're seeing. But if we could rewind a little bit and and go back to like the anatomy of this anxiety and depression from the physiological, what's going on to the emotional, to the spiritual, Mm -hmm. what's happening to the human body when these things begin to occur? And what should we be looking for? Sure. Well, I think that it's so important, first of all, for people to understand actually the purpose of emotions, quite honestly. And so what do I mean by that? I mean, why did God actually give us emotions? And even frankly, just going to the scripture, which we've, which you mentioned earlier, Steve, scripture said, hey, don't be anxious about anything. And I think we have to really interpret scripture with other scripture. That's an important hermeneutic principle. And so if we take that verse, don't be anxious about anything. And we say that if we're ever anxious that we're in sin, then that would actually contradict scripture. Because if we go to Ephesians 4, it says, in your anger, don't sin or be angry and sin not, depending on the version that you look at. Okay. And so I've talked with enough theologians and friends to just make sure that my interpretation is not inaccurate here or an error, but we can actually put any emotion in there. We can say, in your anxiety, don't sin. In your fear, don't sin. In your sadness, in your grief, in your hurt, don't sin. So I think it's important for people to know that when they're experiencing emotions, that there clearly is a grace-filled, biblical, spiritual intent and God's kindness and design to allow us to experience and feel those emotions acutely, okay? Mm. And so we can talk a whole lot more about that, but it is possible that emotion can become a good thing. And when I say good thing, I don't mean just happy and peaceful, you know, what we would say that the more positive emotions, in fact, we can call those the emotions that were in the garden before the fall. But then after the fall, God graciously gave us fear and sadness and hurt and grief because we were then cast out of the garden and we were now in a world that was dangerous and that wasn't safe. And we needed those emotions as warning symbols to help us to self-preserve. Okay. So again, having people understand emotions and I've had people come into my office and just say, I've been so anxious. And I just, it's hard for me to share that with you because I know it's a sin to be anxious because it says right here, be anxious for nothing. Well, I can't say that I haven't been anxious. I've been anxious a lot. So how do I repent of this? And so there's so much freedom when they realize that God gave us anxiety to help us. There's righteous anxiety, but then there's also an unrighteous anxiety. So you you would, Greg, I'm sorry. No, that's fine. No, go ahead. That's it. I love what you're hitting on these all cylinders right now, and I'm just enthralled by it. Sure. But to be clear, you're talking about, listen, it's natural for us to be anxious about things. but Certainly. it's kind of like driving to work. You know, I'm anxious about what I used to be and uh, the traffic that I would encounter and getting there on time. But once I was there, everything was okay. It would go away. And I right. wouldn't think about it all day long. I wouldn't right. dwell on it. And, but that was natural. But then there's an unhealthy thing that I think you're talking about in scripture that yeah. says when it causes you, you said to sin, to take this to another level and totally right. distract you to an unhealthy sure. place. This is what yeah. I'm talking about. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. One of my favorite authors, his name is Paul Tripp. He has a phrase. He said, a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. Wow. And I think that's a really good way to think about it. So how can my anxiety possibly be a good thing? Okay. Well, why did God give us anxiety? Mm. You know, if we don't have anxiety, we might not know when we are at capacity. 
We may not know, but we're finite beings. That's why God says live only in today. Today has enough trouble. Don't be, don't be thinking about the future because you've got plenty to focus on in the day. And so as soon as we're able to see that anxiety, so as soon as we start to go beyond our concern for the day, give us today our daily bread. And, and the verse that we've quoted, don't be anxious about anything. Tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. As soon as we start to worry about the future, and frankly, that's where most people's concerns and worry are in the future. Okay. And so God in his kindness, I believe, allows us to speak or to experience anxiety when we step out of what we were designed to do. And so when we essentially, when we disintegrate ourselves, and then our mind and our feelings and thoughts are in the future rather than in the present, then we're not fully integrated and we're not living in the present like God has designed us to live in. And that little ping of anxiety, you know, hey, look, you're out of your, you weren't designed to worry and to be concerned about tomorrow and 10 days from now. So now just to be clear, certainly God also tells us to count the costs of things and to plan. So just in the area of finances, for example, because we make deposits every day into our retirement account because we're, we want to make sure that we save up, we're thinking about the future, but that's wisdom. That's not, you're not energized in fear there. Yeah, so you were talking about physiology, understanding emotions and what they're designed for, okay? And we could take so many emotions, shame, grief, and sadness, and talk about what that looks like, what God intended for those emotions in a righteous way, and then see what happens when it becomes a ruling thing. I get this question. How do you know when you have crossed into sort of the unrighteous part? How do you know when you're actually in sin versus when you're staying righteous or in that righteous place? And a lot of it has to do with whether it is more other-centered or more self-centered. And so like when we talk about anger, for example, I think this is and that's the most common emotion that we all feel. Even people that have no emotional IQ at all, everyone, every one of them gets anger. Mm-hmm. And the other one that they get is pain because when you have physical pain, everybody's aware of it. But so a righteous anger is typically going to be, if it's righteous, is going to be other-centered. Okay, and very protective. And so when God's law is violated, human trafficking, people getting bullied at school, injustice, injustice, abortion, when God's laws are being violated, there can be a righteous anger that we can have as believers and as Christians. And then but those folks that, you know, so that good thing, they're angry about the injustice and the way God designed, we're not treating people with dignity. But if they start to go and harass people that are demonstrating for the other side or back in the 80s where people were blowing up abortion clinics and things like that. Yeah. You know, that's obviously their anger. Now they're taking justice in their own minds. So anger can be a good thing as, as long as it's based on a principle of God being violated. But most of the time, and I think we could all admit to this, is that when we experience anger, it's not because of God's law being violated, but it's our law. That's true. That's being violated. It's you should, you ought to, or I can't believe you. And we blame and shame and we're angry. That's not, they're not necessarily violating a law, but they're violating your law. And so that's an example of how anger can all of a sudden become a good thing, can become a bad thing. And then we're taking justice into our hands. So that's just an example, but you could parse that out with all the different emotions and like that. That goes back to a scriptural principle. Talking about this reminded me of something from Proverbs, specifically Proverbs 25, 16. And it sounds kind of funny at face value, but it's both literal and figurative at the same time. If you find honey, eat just enough. Too much of it, and you will vomit. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It's literally true, but figuratively true. And the other way that I've heard that same proverb told is anything in excess is evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, we're talking about the importance of, you know, and this I think goes back, I can't remember your original question now that I think about it. And we were just talking about the anatomy of yeah, anxiety right. and th- these things. What's the physiological The physiological impact, impact certainly. Yep. So in an integrated way, again, because God designed us mm-hmm. as integrated beings, okay, often we feel the emotion of anxiety and some people can name it. Some might just say, oh, they're really worried or there's all sorts of language. English language is so rich in that it gives us so many different words. And there's so many, and those words just have different levels of intensity to describe what fear might be the core thing, but worried, nervous, afraid, there's so much language for it. But yeah, there's a physiological response when you feel the emotion of anxiety, you also typically feel it in your body physically. Okay. So that's, and often when I'm working with folks, when someone says they're, you know, I'm feeling really anxious, I'll often ask them, where in your body? Are you feeling this? And the, oh yeah, mm. like right, right here in my neck or right mm-hmm. here in my head or in my shoulder, fill in the blank. And it's different places in my stomach. And, and so that sense of their physical body is if they're anxious, they're having a congruent physical response to what they're actually feeling. Okay. But we haven't got to the cognitive. We have an emotion. There's also a there's also a, a sequence of thoughts. There's a, a bunch of thoughts that travel with that emotion. And in fact, when when someone says they're really anxious and you engage them, so tell me what that anxiety is like for you. Mm. They're going to they're going to give me a series of of thoughts. So they might say, "Well, my stomach hurts, and I and I feel really tight chested and all that." They'll give you a physical description, but they'll also say, "Well, when I have anxiety, I'm worried about a car wreck, or I'm worried about I'm worried about getting COVID, or I'm worried about I, when I was at the the grocery counter getting food or whatever. The person the person next to me didn't have a mask, you know, right. or I'm worried about this test that I'm going to have, and and so they talk." They provide thoughts, or I'm thinking that, oh no, if I do this, then this will happen. They're, they have if-then statements, and so there's a narrative, and, that, and that a lot of that is happening in their relationship with themselves. Another, another Paul trip. No one talks to you more than you do. Mm, that's true. And so you have a constant narrative going on. When you're self-aware, you're aware of what you're saying to yourself. You're aware of what you're thinking. You're aware of what you're feeling. You're aware of what's going on physically. And and that that's another verse that talks about God's called us. And by the way, not called us, but actually commanded us. When we talk about the verb tenses that scripture uses, you, they use the imperative. It talks mm. about being sober-minded. So it's not like, hey, it's a, it's a good thing to think about being integrated and sober. No. He says, you need to, to be all together, not in the sense of, oh, you have it all together, but all of you needs to be with you, okay, in that sense. So you're physically present and you're aware of what you're feeling and you're aware that you're thinking and there's congruency, okay, in that sense. And so I I often think that when people are anxious, okay, that they are truly disintegrated because their emotion of anxiety, and it's most of the time it's in the future, It's the what ifs, what if this happens, what if that happens, but there's also a train of thought that travels with it. So what's actually happened is that a whole bunch of thoughts and the emotion of anxiety are no longer in the present. And so, and remember, we've been designed to be in the present. So what's left is your physical shell in the present and your thoughts and emotions are in a different place. And that often can generate anxiety because in one sense, you've isolated yourself. 
if that yeah, and that's, that's kind of like that snowball anxiety now it's starting to snowball because you're advancing this to the day next the next day like jesus yeah. said don't worry about tomorrow right because now this is beginning to snowball exactly yeah just another passage that struck me too if you read in exodus once they're all out once all of israel has exited god brought them out of egypt out of bondage and out of slavery and then in, but into the wilderness and into the desert okay and and you remember what they started doing? They started whining and complaining mm-hmm. that, yes. oh, why'd you bring us out here to die? We were used to all of those fruits and vegetables and being near the water and all that. So they were whining, complaining. And then remember God brought them manna and yep. then brought them quail. Okay. All right. But do you remember the commandments, the rules of the game, so to speak, when the manna fell? Okay. What did they say to do? Gather what? Enough manna for what? Today. Today. That's right. And what happened for those that gathered more? What happened to that manna that they gathered that that was for? They wanted to fill up their cupboards. They didn't want to finish the day with empty cupboards, you know, so to speak. I'm obviously in the vernacular here, but what happened, it, it turned to mold and was maggot infested. Kind of okay. like our, our refrigerator. Yeah, sometimes. there you go, right? So you have to go back. I wonder what the principle was there. God wanted them... He wanted them, look, I brought you out of Egypt. I took you out of bondage and the Red Sea. Think about all that they experienced. But yet we go back to this. It's so hard because of our sin and because of the fallen world for us to have trust. And But God wanted to teach them to depend on him and you know, his word, I will provide for you. And uh, so gather what you need for that day. But if you worry about tomorrow's portion, then you know that good thing became a bad thing. Now I'm having to take care of myself. And um, so anyway, that's just another good passage, I think, that fits with anxiety. Greg, that's so counter to our culture, though, right now, because it's about saving up for tomorrow. It's about having information in front of us in milliseconds about what's happening around the other side of the world for us to process about tomorrow or about now. That's not how we were made, is it? C.S. Lewis also made a comment, and I think it was in Mere Christianity, but mm-hmm. it says, you know, when you wake up in the morning, and again, I'm not quoting it exactly, when you start your day and you find yourself worried, concerned, and just overwhelmed with your day, just remember you're living in a world that you were never meant to live in. Amen to that. A fractured okay. creation. What's that? Amen. Yes, a fractured exactly. creation. Is yes. That, that, that's yeah. to me been the most accurate phrase for it. Yeah. I work with a bunch of men. And I'm going to let Hannah address maybe the women's perspective on this, but we're all kind of about, okay, give me the quick down and dirty answer sure. to, to what I need to fix. Sure. And, and so what is it? I mean, from a, and I'll let Hannah address the women's side of things, but when you see yourself or, or you see someone else having the, the symptoms of sure. anxiety, what do you tell them? I mean, what do we do next? Yeah. Well, the first thing I, the first thing I try to help them to understand is kind of what we talked about earlier. It's just like, okay, so talk, talk to me about, tell me more about that anxiety. What are you feeling? And then tell me, tell me more about what you're thinking. What are the thoughts that you have with that, with that emotion, by the way, how are you feeling physically? So that in that moment, from the very beginning, they're aware of, okay, wow, it's not just this emotion that's this fog and it's uncomfortable, but wow, I have thoughts that that go with it. And it even impacts my body. And so it helps them to be awareness of that. And then as they talk about that, I'm encouraging them to ask themselves some questions. You know, scripture calls us to do a few things. They say, first of all, above all, above all else, guard your heart yes. for it's the wellspring of life. 
Okay. So when we think about our emotions and thoughts, we tend to, when we talk about our heart, we tend to go to our chest area here, but actually this is really where it is because our emotional center is more on the right side of the brain and the cognitive center is more on the left and a little more on the left side. There's also what keeps our bodies functioning, keeps our life support and our lungs and heart and operating. Okay. So, but, so we're called to guard our heart. And so that means we have to make sense of the emotions and the thoughts that I'm having in that moment so that we have greater clarity as to what this emotion is about, what is going on, why is this emotion actually present? Okay, so it's kind of start at that place, okay? And then and then we talk about what it means to self-regulate. And that means, and, and again, we go to scripture to the that we're called to take our thoughts captive, okay? Mm. And so, and again, our thoughts, our thoughts are all part of our heart. Our, even though we, we do this, we, the heart is the is the biblical term that's used to describe emotions, thoughts, and, and kind of the causal core of all who we are. So that's just to define that a little bit. And if so, you could define, Greg, that, that take your thoughts captive piece, because... Some of those thoughts that come in there don't belong there. Right. And, and they're lies. Sure. And, and so we need to really have discernment. Yes. This, this is a whole new, this is a whole spiritual conversation as well as what's oh, going certainly. on with that. But yeah. maybe we'll save that for part four. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Sure. <laughs> but we but do. defining the we, captive part you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, sure. So the taking your thoughts captive idea is, again, what we are doing is we are we're essentially having, it's part of the self-regulation process mm-hmm. where, where we are having that conversation with ourself. Okay. It's, it, it's Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O Lord. Know yes. my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any offensive way in me. And lead wow. me in the way everlasting. So, in that sense, in that and tying that with the take thoughts captive. So, what what we're doing is we we're feeling the emotion of anxiety, and then what are the thoughts that travel with that? And then as we articulate those thoughts, I actually encourage people to write them down, and to, just because when you write them down, you, you're forced to have to to face them. Okay, this is what I'm thinking right now, and I'm reading. This is what I'm thinking, and and then that often helps you to be more a little more objective. Okay, because remember, emotions are subjective. Okay. And the other Mm -hmm. thing that's true is that emotions don't have a timeline. Okay. So usually when we are distressed, okay, that's just a big word. Anxiety could be part of it. It could be angry. But when we're distressed, okay, our emotions usually go on a journey. That emotional part of us, so they and they they may go back to the past because something in in the present reminded you of something in the past that's unresolved. Okay, so so that's part of the disintegration thing. So part so now our emotions are back in the past, and that's why our response, what we're doing, we're actually we're not really responding in the present. We're actually reacting in the present, and that's those are two key words: too reacting, responding. And so so we have to we have to lean on and the back to the sober minded. Okay, with if my emotions are either in the future or in the past, then I need objective truth left side of the brain, cognitive truth, objective thinking to help me to reintegrate and to bring us back home. So in that sense, so now we've talked, so taking the thoughts captive. So objective thinking. So first question that I usually ask people to ask, especially when there's fear, but also with other emotions. First question, where am I? Literally. Literally. Yeah. And and like, and so, oh, wait a minute. I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually a mom. 
with two kids and I'm at the church office working. I'm at my computer and my husband is, is over next to me. And, and what that does is that helps the emotions that are in the past or in the future to come back, come back to the present. Hmm. Okay. Just the simple as we call them grounding questions. Okay. And so we bring them back to that place. Okay. Then, especially since fear and anxiety is, I think a big part of our time together today, we have to understand what the emotion of fear is about. Okay. Fear was for self-preservation. Okay. And so then we have to go. And so back to that righteous decision that in my fear, don't sin. Okay. In the anger, but in this case, in my fear, don't sin. So to, so since we know that fear is about self-preservation, we have to ask the question, am I in danger? Hmm. Okay. And so, that so and again that's a present question so i'm feeling fear and i'm experiencing my physically emotionally like i'm shaking or i'm in a panic attack and often it's interesting if you've ever been around somebody that as having a panic attack, it's a really terrifying thing to watch. Absolutely. And if, you, and if you've ever had one yourself, it's very yeah. terrifying. Okay. Because yep. your heart, you think you're having a heart attack and all this is going on. But really, they, they've got, usually have people, often they'll have people with them. They're in a safe place. They're not in any danger. And so you have a huge incongruency with what's happening physically and and what they're thinking. They're thinking that they're in danger, but they're really not in any danger. So so that grounding question, where am I? And that helps bring you back to the present. Am I in danger? And then the next question I often ask is, by the way, how many times have you actually been in danger? Hmm. Which gives perspective too. Again, there's objective objective truth, not just what do you feel like? I, f- I feel like I've never been in danger. No. And then people are able to realize, wow. So I'm, I'm talking about being afraid of feeling self-preservation fear, but I'm not in danger. In fact, in my whole life, I'm 57 years old or whatever old you are, I've, I've, I've maybe been in danger once or twice in my life. Now, I know some of your story, Steve and, and Luke, you guys have shared some of that. You guys have had a lot more than just one experience in your life mm. of, of, of that danger. But but asking them to for them to answer that question, at minimum, it helps them to come out of intense terror and fear of dying or being in danger. Now they just become uncomfortable and maybe a little worried or maybe a little concerned, but that really, that's a significant change. And and that, and that emotion might be more, more congruent. Okay. But why did God give us fear for self-preservation? So if you're in the ocean and you're swimming and you look over your shoulder and there's a triangle fin sticking out of the water coming at you, you know, you're going to swim the fastest you've ever swum. Okay. You're going to feel that emotion of terror. What are you going to be thinking? I'm going to die. I need to get to the boat. If you watch Jaws, I got to get a bigger boat. I've got to (laughs) get back to the boat or I got to get to the shore. I've got to, I'm not going to see my kids again, or is this going to hurt? And so all, all those thoughts, okay, are incredibly congruent with that fear and you are in danger and you're in the, okay. And your physical body, there's adrenaline pumping through it. And so all of that's congruent. And so God gave us that fear. And if we did not have fear, we would be walking up to bears. We'd be diving into the the great coral reef and get chewed to pieces. And so that's what I mean. So that's a, a godly fear. But if we're experiencing like we're drowning or like we're gonna get, we're gonna lose our life, because we have to come and do a podcast and and we're going to be afraid of what people are going to think of us. And, and am I going to screw it up, which you guys have made it so accommodating here, then that that fear is incongruent 
I'm uncomfortable. Hey, I want to, I want this to be valuable when I'm talking about, I want it to impact people, but my life is not at stake here and I'm not in danger. And by the way, you can edit out stuff too that I miss. So, so that idea, so those are the things. And that's, so I hope that's a, an example. So in helping people, that's the taking thoughts captive is just when, when they write those thoughts down and like, I'm going to die or this person will never talk to me ever again and, or whatever. And you know, they're able to look at those thoughts and like evaluate them and like that is a lie i don't believe that and and so that and that helps them to regulate so objective truth is helping subjective experience to 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 be able to be more congruent and then that helps to them to deregulate or to to calm down and to not be ruled by their anxiety in those moments and that makes a great deal of sense. You're, you're asking practical questions about the moment. Does that mm-hmm. fit what you're feeling? Yeah. And right. chances are it's not going to. Yes. And so, and, so, and so all that I just described, okay, is really helping people to self-regulate. Self-regulate. Okay. All right. Now, so, but you know, what, but what if this keeps happening over and over again, those same emotions, that intensity, I'm constantly, it's, it's it's helpful in those moments to, to get yourself thinking in a sober minded way. Okay. But for people that have gone through significant trauma, okay, it's a much, it's a much different story. The brain chemistry has really been deeply impacted and that gets into post-traumatic stress and and other, other kinds of anxiety disorders and things like that, that, that are out there. But, but yeah. And so treatment for some of those things is is a little more different. You're not, so you were self-regulating, but that's not necessarily resolving. If you keep having these panic attacks and this intense anxiety, often it's, there could be some kind of post-traumatic stress and that's not just just with war, people that have been in the military or, or have been in combat, but people that have gone through domestic violence or people that have been in car accidents or people that have gone through sexual assaults. Yeah. So, so by, by helping them to, to self-regulate through those situations, what helps the brain to actually to experience some healing from that. Where, in other words, where they're not every time something happens or they're triggered, where they are ruled by that emotion is the principle of differentiation. Okay. Mm. And so often people that where they go back into the past, and like I said, when they're triggered and all of a sudden they're anxious and fearful, their emotions go on a journey. Okay. They usually go backward in time. Mm. And what's happening is that they're experiencing emotion in the present that in a lot of ways potentially has its origin back in the past. Okay. And so it's almost that in the present so let, let's say that, Steve, you were my dad and you abused me, okay? Physically, like hit me, okay? Yeah. If I'm feeling, and in the present, if I'm feeling fear, I might, the person that I'm with in the present, their face might actually become my dad's face. Wow. People talk about that. And oh, so yeah. they're, li- they're literally, their emotions, because again, when you talk about traumatic events, they're so vivid because they're all, your entire body is impacted by it. You know, the people that are war vet or combat veterans, they're hearing all the sounds of the bullets going past them, okay? They're watching their friends bleed. They're experiencing the emotion of self-preservation fear that is appropriate to have in those moments. The smells that they're having yeah. it's an, and the physical pain that they're going through, it's a whole body experience. And your body, the body keeps the score, if you've heard of that book, it's a tremendous book by Bezel van der Kolk. He is the guru of trauma and he's a secular guy, but there's so much common grace 
information that helps you to understand trauma in the brain. So again, in the present, when we've gone through trauma, often our our emotions and thoughts and our physical body all take a journey back there. And it's as if you are actually going through it again. And when you're all parts of you are gone in the present, you're just sort of like a deer in the headlights, or you might just see that person just in a physical state of panic, but you don't like you're looking around, everything seems okay, but it's because they're reliving that that experience. But so what they have to do is they have to learn, they have to learn to realize and, and be self-aware that they are not in the present. They're back in Vietnam or they're back in the car wreck that they had when they were a kid or back when they were abused. And so, and, the, and then when they come back to the present, then you're able to actually, that actually helps you to make sense. Oh, okay. Those emotions were very congruent. Mm. Something's not wrong with you because you experience fear and anxiety in the present. But it's saying that those those emotions make sense in that situation. Okay, but where are you now? You're in the present. You're you're the people that you're dealing with are that's not your dad who abused you, or that's not the person that was driving drunk and hit you, or so. And that's the differentiation. And so that's really how not the only way, but that is I think what helps people to actually have more healing from their anxiety that it's so that it's not, we're not just sort of managing it, but we're actually equipping them and helping them to resolve some of those things. And folks that have had trauma in the past, if they haven't gone through counseling or processed those traumatic experiences, they remain unresolved in their whole body. And that's often why they're triggered in the present, because it's something that they have not worked through and they just sort of try to manage it rather than actually work to resolve it. So, wow, Greg, um, that's really good stuff. A lot of verbiage. I'm sorry. No, it's not. Verbal processor. And there's a couple so. of terms here that I'm trying to write down as I go, because by the time we're done, we'll have a book. And when, when your book <laughs> comes out, let me know. But oh. as, I, as I look around the table here, I see a bunch of heads nodding mm-hmm. up and down, and I just want to throw it out there to you guys. I mean, what are you thinking? I mean, what's going through your heads, mm-hmm. Brian? I, 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 I see a little bit of everything, what you're saying, Greg, having experienced it in past professions current mm-hmm. professions. A lot of this, I think, is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but working in the news media business currently profession, what role do you see that playing currently where, I mean, Steve, you, you talk about this quite often also, having to just turn it off. I mean, mm-hmm. this is where people are in today's society, getting their information. Yep. Is there news? You were talking a little earlier, Greg, about social media, texting and email and all that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know the percentages. Luke, we were talking about this not too long ago. Relationships now, majority of them are their starting point is through online, r- regardless of whether it is a paid subscription type of site or Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. You mean dating as well? Right. Yes. That's so anyway, I'll I'll stop talking and let you answer of the impact you think that has because, and then I'll get to the things such as law enforcement, which I used to be in a lot of anxiety there too. Yeah. Thanks for your service. (laughs) Appreciate it. But go ahead. I'll I'll let you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You tapped into it. The social media, again, it's just the news, our phones. I mean, for Steve and I are probably closer to age than, Mm. than the rest of you. 
And we never, we never had our phones. We never had computers. We had our TVs and the radio pretty much. And, and, and the, the information overload that we have, the, 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 the access and, and the, the excessiveness of it that's there, I think does really breed a lot of anxiety as well. Because again, you're also interacting with content. Okay. You're reading. And of course there's that visual stimulation too. I mean, I mean, I was, I was, I was just on my phone the other day and I mean, and I don't have a Twitter account, but somebody put a link to a video from Twitter and it's like, Hey, just here's, here's a video. Here's some bombing going on right now. Oh, and here's a dead body over here, this kind of thing. And, and we're just, we didn't, we didn't grow up with that. And, and I don't think that was ever meant to be what, what kind of coverage that we have right now. And I do think it's excessive and I do think it, it, it raises our anxiety and contributes greatly to it. Hannah, what are you thinking? I was thinking about what you said about people who have experienced trauma. Mm-hmm. What do you? Th- what are some of the strategies that people use or have used to kind of bring themselves back from those traumatic experiences? Like when they are suddenly feeling them. I had a very dear friend of mine who would sometimes have those and what she would do would just like touch my arm, just like remind herself that she was in the present with a person who was not mm-hmm. the person who had done terrible things to her. It's like, are there other ways to do that? Sure. Um, what absolutely. do people typically do? No, that's, that's an excellent question. So when someone is, 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 is triggered and is like, had that disintegrated experience where their emotions and thoughts are back somewhere in the past, the way some, we, we talked about those grounding questions earlier. So I think that's one part. Another part is doing, doing actually left brain activities. Okay. So when you think about the right brain is, is, if you think about it, there's a disproportion. You're being ruled by your emotions primarily when when you're in trauma or when you're in panic or when you're in fear. And so, <clears throat> so we, we need to bring objective things in. So, so one thing I encourage people to do is actually get a get a pen and paper out and actually journal, and actually write down what they're thinking and what they're feeling and and describe what you're seeing because those that somehow images can be can be very powerful and so but but what's happening is that you're 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 giving your right brain a little bit of a break and allowing the other part of your brain to do some work and 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 like allow that part of you to rest and so but but when you're doing that writing it's the left part of your brain, you're having to think about what sentences to say. You're having to think about sequencing. Like, oh, I need to write, oh, and then I use, need to use punctuation. I need to form letters when I'm writing. Okay. And so that actually calls more on left brain functioning to do that. Okay. And the other, so, so that, that just, so it's sort of like you're exercising that muscle when you're, when you're trauma, it's like you go to the weight room and you're just, you're just doing curls with one arm and you just do it the whole time. And so, but when you get the other curl, then, you know, you usually don't do this, but you'll do this <laughs> and then you'll do this. I don't even know if you can see what I'm doing, but the idea is that you're bringing your left brain in. And so the other thing is actually them telling talking about their trauma. Oh, well, if I talk about that, then I'm going to think too much about that. But, but actually when you talk about the experience, when we tell stories, that's actually left brain. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because, because emotions don't have time and place. 
no timeline. There's no context. Okay. Oh, so 30, 30 years ago when I was here, this is what happened. I was with my buddies and fill in the blank. This is what was going on. And then they talk about, and now they might be crying and they might be weeping and they might even be shaking while they're talking because it's a traumatic memory to have. But the more that they actually t- share the story and, and another person hears them, and wow, that and validate. Wow, I can't even imagine what that would have, that would have been like. And and then the reaching out and touching them. I, I, that is thanks for sharing that. I I just can't imagine what that would have been, was like for you. And and then so the physical touch is providing comfort. Your your words of of like you're being empathetic and summarize what you hear them saying. And they like wow, they get me. And that physical touch. And and but because they're having to tell that story, they're having to, they're having to recall what we call explicit memory. Okay. Explicit memory being, I would say, so, Hey, you went on a vacation last week. Tell me what you did. Oh, let's see. We went to this restaurant. I ordered this. We were in Outer Banks. I had these people with me. The waitress was really cool. She was from my university. Okay. And so when you're telling, when you're telling that story, that objectivity, okay, helps you to realize that you're not in the present. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about something that happened in the past. And so in the present, so it just, it helps to differentiate and it brings some resolution because you're, you're having to put words to that story that happened in the past. And that actually helps bring some closure to what's going on now. I don't mean that, oh, great. I have one conversation with somebody and and I'm, and I'm better. No, I mean, but, but in the, the, the body keeps score, keeps the score piece. They're, the war veterans, he talks about how when they get together and they share all of those stories, that that helps them to feel calmer because they realize they're not alone and other people understand them. And of course, who's going to understand better a war veteran than another war veteran who went through what they went through? Right. So those are a couple of thoughts. Does that Does that answer? Yes, very much so. Thank you. You're welcome, Hannah. Thank you for asking. Greg, let's talk about the spiritual component of the whole aspect of anxiety, depression, and fear. It's real, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Very much so. And I think, again, the evil one, he's not going to be able to snatch us out of our father's hand, but he can discourage us. He can tempt our mindset to have different mindsets. We can become self-absorbed and too independent and pursue broken cisterns that don't hold water, forsaking him, the spring of living water. And, and the evil one does try to entice us to, to go those directions. And, and so, yes, we are fighting a battle with the evil one. And, and, that, and of course, when we choose to give in to those temptations and those allures that are out there, then it does set us up for anxiety and, and many other emotions as well. And, but again, that's, that's where we can, when that happens, because we are, because we are children of the King, he, uh, his Holy Spirit is, is inside of us and helps us. And so when we experience anxiety because we are living in the future or we are trying to live for ourselves, or, or that when we're stressed out and we go to, to things to, to relieve our stress rather than going to relationship to work through it. Our emotions signal us that we are not operating the way that we were in, meant to design, we were designed to operate. And so, so yeah, the, the Lord helps us to fight those battles. Again, the side of heaven, we will all at times, as Paul confesses in Romans 7, things I want to do, I don't do. We're never going to do it right all the time. And, and what does it say at the end? Thanks be to God for rescuing this body of death. So so yeah, so it's it's definitely real real stuff going on. 
As we bring our time to close tonight, we really are thankful for you spending the time and investing into this topic. It's not going to go away. What what words, speaking to the folks listening to us right now, we, we're a podcast about hope, that there's a tomorrow, that uh, what would you leave them with? What practical words, how would you address those folks listening to us right now if they're struggling with these issues, what to do next? Yeah, there's there's books written on that. So trying yeah. to think of, of a short answer uh, on that. But <clears throat> I think I think the first thing that I would want to encourage folks to do and to know is that all of the emotions that you feel are God-given, hmm. okay? And they're not to be, you don't want to view them as something's wrong with me because I'm feeling this or that there's a threat. As in, in other words, I need to if I'm feeling this, I'm, I'm ill or something's wrong with me. That, so that kind of perspective, just to know that our emotions, God gave us those emotions and they, they have a purpose and there's a function. And so we want to welcome those emotions and, and try to, to be curious about them and to understand them and to try to make sense of them and to understand that our emotions are one voice at the table. When we, when I, often when I help people, when we talk about self-awareness, imagine yourself having a committee meeting of three. Okay. So you're sitting at a table and you got emotions in one chair, thoughts in another chair, physical body in another chair, and you're talking to each other. And you are trying to, you're being curious about each part. You're asking questions and you're, you're, you want to explore it and identify it and allow words and descriptions to be present for them. And when you do that, you are you are being obedient to the Lord. You're being sober-minded, and you're operating the way that He designed us to operate, which is in an integrated way. And that just the the, the scripture of the greatest commandment: mm-hmm. love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. That's such a key aspect. There, I'm looking for the. There's a, a verse here I wanted to pull up here, and I don't. You know what? I didn't. I didn't print out that sheet. So anyway, so I want folks to to be able to, with curiosity and with interest, move to move, move towards those parts of themselves to have a greater awareness of what's going on, and and then when they are doing that, there's a greater likelihood that you are going to be responding to situations rather than reacting to situations. So I think that's and so there is hope. And again, and because our heart. So we're in a quandary. Above all else, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. But the heart is deceitful. Who can understand it? What a paradox that we're in. And so we need, and so Psalm 139 reminds us, look, I knit you together. I know you. I know what you're thinking before you even think it. I can count your thoughts like the grains of sand. I know a word before it's even on your tongue. Search me, O Lord. Help me to see my heart. My That's my emotions, my thoughts. Help me to see them how you see them. And, and Lord, lead me in the everlasting way. So in a spirit of dependence, that helps you. So as you try to live and operate in an integrated way, fully present with all parts of you, that all are, are, make, are part of your, the oneness of, of how you were designed, that allows you to, to live the way God designed you to live. Would you say for particularly those struggling with this, and the way they see the world right now is not necessarily healthy, but to have at least someone in their life that they trust that can speak truth to them, to say, when they're feeling this or seeing this or their reality says, this is what I see, they can say, no, that's not true. Absolutely. And and you topped it off, right? I, I'm 
I'm sad that I didn't even say that in what I just said, but but the the reality being that again we weren't not we're not meant to be alone, mm-hmm. and so God has given us each other for comfort and for support. How many love? How many one another passages are there in Scripture? Weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And so, in our grief, in our sadness, in our vulnerable emotions, in our anxiety, to be able to talk about that with another person helps you not to feel alone. And that's uh, God designed it that way. Amen. Such a great conclusion. In fact, th- those words are that that I said is what you said earlier on. I just repeated them back. So thank you oh, for okay. that, Greg. Sure. I'm going to ask these wonderful folks and co-hosts sitting around me right now, is there any remaining thoughts that you have that you'd like to share with Greg or to the people who are listening? There's one little thing. When you were talking about what folks should do, and I think it is really important that we do understand like, okay, all of our emotions ultimately go back to being God made. And, and, and that is a good and welcome thing. And uh, I'm certainly unlearned in this regard, but as a guy who listens to a lot of things and watches a lot of things that have to do with other podcasts and people who talk about similar issues, whether they're also uh, counselors or behaviorists or in that vein, just there's a word that gets thrown around a lot that I kind of wrestle with the concept of, and uh, that word is validation that like, and I feel like we're in this culture now where everything absolutely positively needs to be validated. And it's, well, it's okay to have emotions, but this idea that everything should be accepted and validated at face value, I think is particularly and in a more shadowed or hidden way particularly sinister. Mm-hmm. What, what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah. And, you know, and the words, the meanings of words are in people. And and, I, and that's one of the things that we don't do. It's so, it's so good that you bring this up, Luke, because we will use words. And, and, and that's why it's so important to reflect back when you're having a conversation. Hey, you said that word. What do you mean by validation? Or what do you mean when you say afraid or anxious because you know we often project oh well, this oh this is much we, we usually take our own definition when someone uses a word and we project our definition on what they said and then we depersonalize mm-hmm. them no what do you mean help me understand what you mean by it so so i'm with you on that luke yes validation is not about saying oh you're absolutely right or yeah i don't know why people don't believe exactly what you're saying that kind of thing so when i think when i'm using the word validation the idea is that it's really part of the active listening process. Okay. So as we're talking and I'm trying to understand your experience, what you're feeling, what you're thinking, and then you're sharing those things with me, then I'm reflecting back to you, summarizing back. So that helps you to know that you've been heard. Okay. And so there's that. So that, that's a piece of the active listening. Now the validation would be something along the lines of, Hey, I could, I could see how you would feel that way. Hmm. Or, wow, if I was in that situation, as you described it, I would have felt that way too. Mm, I see. Thing along those lines. Okay. And so, and, and you can have those discussions and, and you can actually care well for someone and help them to feel heard, understood and validated without even agreeing with them. That's true. So that's what I mean. So validation, you know, like, hey, until you until you say you're exactly right, you're not validating it. No, it's, it's like, hey, I could see, I could see how you might feel that way. But that's but even, that's what I mean. Yeah, that, that's where I was getting it with that because, and the reason I brought that up is yeah. I've heard 
self-admittedly unhealthy people use that term or something like it in a gaslighting maneuver to be like when you know that they're you're not even telling them but you just know even as an unlearned untrained person in that regard just via simple common sense that someone is not okay and they use that word validation or something like it in a gaslighting manner to be like no like you have to accept that this is okay and it's like no you're you're not okay you know what I mean? Not that you're putting them down, but what they're doing, what they're saying, where they're taking that feeling to the logical conclusion of is not healthy. Right. But they use, but you, you just see, uh, basically I'm just bringing up some unhealthy people's defense mechanisms and how particularly mm-hmm. sometimes intelligent, but unhealthy people will use certain terms, almost furthering their own, unwell ways if i can't really put it better than that mm-hmm. yeah does that make sense yeah, yeah I, I think i'm understanding you there and and that that kind of validation there's there's almost a demanding a clenched fist you you better you better validate me that could possibly be what's going on and but also in the gaslighting concept as well i mean yeah, I'm, I'm tracking with you yeah to, to make it more succinct i'm doing something th- that a healthy person would immediately recognize is dangerous and or self-destructive and i'm going to pull out this world va- word validation to make you agree that it's okay that i'm doing it when it's like no mm-hmm. it, it, it's not right yeah yep yeah so they're in a, in a sense they want to justify what they're doing and they and they want you to tell them that it's okay so they can keep doing it yeah because it's something that they want to hold on to and they don't want to let go of. Exactly. Just let me get a little commentary from you on with being a professional, probably having dealt with that, how you face, not face, how you help. There we go. How you help people who are, I mean this carefully, but difficult in that sense. Sure. Where they might, they might be a little defensive or, or maybe, making making demands to be validated is that what you mean right right now part of that is i know that someone who doesn't want to get well probably isn't Mm -hmm. but if you could elaborate sure yeah i i immediately think of the verse we're called to speak the truth in love Mm-hmm. Okay, so if they're really ramped up and they're they're angry, or they're not grabbing your shirt and shaking you. You better you better validate me. But but their tone of their voice, their face has that demanding sort of you better come through for me here kind of thing. Speak the truth in love. So to be able to speak to them, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Mm-hmm. So so to speak to to change your tone of voice to not speak in in the same tone and animated way that they're speaking. They call that NLP, neurolinguistic program, kind of mirroring to them, helping you actually help them to calm down a little bit when you talk softer, but asking questions. Okay. Because when someone is doing what you described, Luke, they are, they're in a, they're in a more self-protective, more demanding 
posture. And and so for us to to start debating or if we start making you statements, well, you're wrong or you just need, you're full of it, or I can't believe you believe that. Do you really think that that's what God calls you to do? I can't believe. So you hear what I'm saying? There's And so right. those you statements are criticisms. And of course, they're already in a defensive place. They might as well just hit the pause button, go get their suit of armor out and have a shield and then a storm. Now it's going to be this. And so you're not really connecting at all. And so, so I think asking questions rather than making statements Mm. Uh, is a strategy that I would take because the asking questions, it's such a, an other-centered, loving thing to do, even when people are in distress, to ask them a question about them. I want to know more about what you're thinking, what you feel. Help me understand that. Can you tell me more about that? Those kinds of open-ended questions rather than either you statements or or just flat-out statements. When you make statements, that kind of tends to shut down conversation because you don't necessarily respond to a statement, but a question. So, and then so in a sense, uh, talk about young life. Okay. One of their principles, earn the right to be heard. Okay. Well, they're da, 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 and you need to validate me. Well, I need to, I want to, I want you to know that I'm listening and that I care for you, but it would really help me to know more about what you're saying. And then, so you draw them out, ask some questions, help them and help them to feel heard. And then that builds trust and connection. It helps them to dysregulate from being in a defensive place. And then you set the stage to be able to then speak the truth. Brother, you've been a friend for a long time and we've been able to shoot straight with each other and be candid with each other. When you say these things, I feel this and hmm. and I am really I am really I say, I am really concerned about that. I don't Honestly, brother or sister, I don't think that that's healthy. And I would not be your friend if I just said, oh, sure. If I think something is not healthy, I care about you. I don't want to to say, yeah, go keep doing that thing. I mean, what do you think about what do you think about that, friend? And something so lots of questions, soft, soft tone. Again, because if they're animated, if you get animated too, that just that escalates the whole environment. Yeah, you're just pushing it. Yeah. So those are a couple thoughts on that. Got right. you. Thank you. Thank yeah, you, you're Greg. welcome. Yep. Well, with that said, Greg, I think we're going to sign off tonight. This has been a fantastic conversation, and I think there's – and you're right. There's no short answer to any of this. Mm. So with that in mind, perhaps in the future we could see you coming back if you would be so kind to do so, to share even more of the great wisdom that you've given us tonight. Well, I'm very happy to do that. And just let me know when you'd like to do it next. This first run, I was like, oh, what in the world is this going to be like? But this is so, this is easy. This is fun. Yeah. And, it's what uh, you do love all to, day long. All yeah. Week long. Love, to, love to do it again whenever you're ready. Th- thank you. Sooner than later, because already I just feel that this is, that this is unfinished, if you know what I mean. And I mean that in a good way, but that we, we should, there's more to ask. There's more to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I know I know one thing that I just I jotted down a few things just for for future when we a lot of the anxiety we've talked about it is it is real and, and we haven't danced around sort of the main issues but the so much ang- so much of anxiety has to do with the fact that we most of us in culture do not resolve things mm-hmm. when there is conflict in relationship and of course all of, most of life is lived in relationship and when there is a rupture in a relationship, and that sounds like a volcano, not, that's not what I'm saying, but but, but just when there could just be, well, I'm just feeling a little distant right now, or, or I'm feeling a little irritated with my spouse or annoyed, That's that most of life is lived in the mundane. And so a lot of anxiety has to do with an accumulation 
of unresolved things that we have. Lord, the scripture calls us to keep short accounts. And that's because we have finite space in our brain. You think of our brain as an inbox that only has so much room there. And when the box starts to get full, the same way that when you go into work and you see an inbox that's full, like, oh crap, I'm so far behind. I got so much to do. And your plate is full. And so by keeping those short accounts helps you to to keep anxiety at bay. But anyway, but that's another whole area. And I think most anxiety is non-clinical. And I think it's self-induced. We bring most of the anxiety that we have and the choices and decisions that we make on a regular basis. Some of those decisions we're making are implicit. We're not aware that we're, we're making a decision, but we're, nevertheless, they're still contributing to that anxiety. So that that's something, that's a whole area that we didn't really get into. And that would be something we could do for the future if you want. That's our part too. And I would really would like to do that sooner than later. So we'll be talking to you. Now that sounds good. Give me a shout whenever you're ready. We'll do great. Thank you for the night. And I know everyone else here, Hannah, we all thank you for just for this great insight. And we really want to do that part too. And and please pass on to your wonderful wife, thanking her to let you spend time with us. Certainly. I'll let her know. She's, I'll let her know tomorrow. She goes to bed early. So, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Good. But great to spend time with you. Great. Thank Mm -hmm. you. And with Luke, if you would sign us off. Mm -hmm. All right. Good night, Greg. Good night. Thank you, Greg. Hey, good night. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Greg. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.